Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Nicholas Parisi, author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, discusses the pulp influences on the classic television program, Twilight Zone. The talk was recorded on August 16th. 2019, at Pulp Fest 2019, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, thanks everybody for uh, sticking around, for coming. Uh, I guess it's somewhat appropriate that the Twilight Zone gets the, the latest uh, presentation time of the, of the night. Um, yeah, so I wrote this here book about Rod Serling. Um, just, I, give you, I won't give you a sales pitch, just to give you very briefly what the book is about, because I think it is, um, it's, uh, somebody just asked me, what is different about this book than the other dozen Twilight Zone books that have been written? Well, this is actually the first book that covers everything that Rod Serling ever wrote, not just the Twilight Zone. So it covers everything from his first television production in 1950 all the way through the Twilight Zone and after the Twilight Zone all the way through Night Gallery. So it covers absolutely every single uh, script that he wrote that was produced and actually a whole bunch that weren't produced as well, including the films, a uh, chapter on Planet of the Apes, etc. So. Um, so, I'd like to start by telling you a little bit about Rod Serling. I mean, uh, I hope that you know a little bit about him, <laughs> at least to build the Twilight Zone. But uh, to give you some of his biography, I mean, Rod Serling was born on Christmas Day, 1924, in Binghamton, New York, upstate New York. And I'm sorry, he was born in Syracuse, New York. I don't know if I'm wrong. He was born in Syracuse, New York, but they moved to Binghamton when he was not even, not even two years old. So he spent his formative years in Binghamton. And Binghamton was his hometown, and he came to love his hometown. He just, um, he adored his memories of Binghamton of when, he was a, when he was a boy there. Primarily because the day after high school graduation in 1942, he shipped off to war. He volunteered for the, uh, for the Army the day after graduation, and he became a paratrooper. And he saw some pretty heavy combat in, in the Philippines, in Lady and Luzon. Uh, he was 18 years old when he, when he joined, barely 18 years old. He you know, joined in January of 43 and turned 18 in December of 42. And he was five foot four inches tall, weighed 118 pounds. And you know, months later, he's fighting in the jungles of, uh, of the Philippines, uh, virtually. So um, just like any other combat veteran, he came back scarred from this. This was, uh, this was with him for the rest of his life. It was, uh, traumatic to say the least. And when he came back, it made him yearn for that innocence of his childhood in Binghamton that much more, that innocence that he would never recapture again. And this kind of thing showed up all the time in the Twilight Zone and, 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 and elsewhere in his work. Um, you know, probably my favorite Twilight Zone episode, Walking Distance, is the most famous example of this about uh, a burned out New York City executive who just wants to go back, just wants to which just wants to get on a carousel again and eat cotton candy and, and taste that innocence again. And um, that was Rod Sterling. That was Rod Sterling reaching back and taking us along for the ride and saying, this is what I, you know, I wish I could do. So Rod Sterling came back from the war. He went to school in, uh, in Yellow Springs, Ohio at, at Antioch College in Yellow Springs. And he started to write. And he started to write primarily as a means to deal with some of that trauma from the war. He very explicitly said it, I, I became a writer to get it out of my gut, to put it on paper. 
And that's what he started to write about, was about his war experiences were the first things. But as Mike had mentioned, um, when he was growing up, he and his brother loved the pulps. They loved comic books, they read comic books, they loved you know, imaginative movies. Probably his favorite movie of all time was King Kong. Um, he and his brother would say that you know, King Kong was like, uh, it was like the, you know, the stop everything kind of movie. They would, whatever they were doing, if King Kong was on TV, you stop what you're doing, you go watch King Kong. You know? and they, they would watch it every time it was ever on TV. You know? So he loved uh, imaginative fiction. Um, this may be a bit of a, uh, you know, an unknown thing about Ron Serling because a lot of people see him as, you know, he was not publishing in the pulps. You know, he did not write short stories for amazing stories or fan, you know, amazing fantasy and science fiction or beyond or anything else. Um, the other writers for the Twilight Zone did, but Rod Serling did not. And he started as a television writer and he wrote straight drama until Twilight Zone began, essentially. So there was kind of this conception that Rod Sterling was not a, a science fiction guy, but he loved science fiction. He loved science fiction and fantasy and horror from the time he was a kid. And he always wanted to do a show like The Twilight Zone. But in television, in 1950, 51, 52, all the way to 59, you know, science fiction just was not what the serious dramatic writer was expected to write. You know, it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't done. It was looked down upon. It was looked as it was something for kids. It was not something a serious writer would waste his time doing. And, you know, there's a very famous interview of Rod Serling with Mike Wallace that's been released on Twilight Zone DVD collections and it's, you know, been used in other, you know, in Rod Serling biographies and stuff where, uh, where Mike Wallace says to Rod Serling straight out says, well, you know, you're going to be spending so much time working on this Twilight Zone that I guess you've uh, given up writing anything important for television. I mean, that, and that was, the, that was the given, that was the common wisdom at the time. He'd given up writing anything important for television because he was writing science fiction now. So, so Rod Serling, again, just to, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, Rod Serling was clearly, I mean, without question, the most prestigious and the most honored and the most, um, celebrated writer in television before The Twilight Zone debuted. The Twilight Zone debuted October 2nd, 1959. By that time, Rod Serling was at the top of the heap. He had won three consecutive Emmy Awards for Best Dramatic Writing in 1955, 56, and 57. Um, he had been a star, I mean literally a star, from the time that a show called Patterns aired. Patterns aired on the Craft Theater in January of 1955, and it literally made Rod Serling a star overnight. And this is something that, so, you know, it's maybe a little bit tough to explain to people. Like, how could, a, you know, one television show make a writer a star? What's, you know, what's the big deal? Well, at the time, you know, live television, we were talking about live television in the, in the early 50s, it was like the opening of a Broadway show. And just as a Broadway show can open and a bad review or a bunch of bad reviews can kill it, it could be, it could be closed by the end of the week, and great reviews can set it off on a course to stay, you know, on um, production for a long time. Well, the same thing with a TV show. And when the reviews came out for Patterns the day after it aired, they were like nothing television had ever seen before. Um, the, you know, the critic for the New York Times essentially, literally said it was the best thing he'd ever seen on television from the standpoint of writing, directing, acting. It was the best thing he'd ever seen produced for television. And so Rod Sterling, you know, Rod Sterling's famous line was, well, the moment that that show went off the air, my phone started ringing, and it's never stopped since. And, and that was essentially true. So that made him a star. 
He, he followed it up with Rickman for heavyweight just about basically the following year, and that confirmed his, his status. Then he happened to win a, th happened to win a third one, uh, a third Emmy Award the next year for a show called The Comedian on Playhouse 90, which is an adaptation. And so he was set. And when he had this name for himself, he built up this prestige, and, and CBS said, well, you know, you can, you can create a show for us now, you know, well, what do you want to do? Well, he went back to the pulps, he went back to his roots, and he said, well, I've, I've always wanted to do this science fiction show. And oh, by the way, you've probably heard that, you know, he had a lot of trouble with the sponsors and the network, network executives over, you know, controversial subject matter in dramas that he was doing. He always got, uh, you know, pushback from these people whenever he tried to address anything relevant in, a, in, in straight drama. And so this was kind of a have your cake and eat it too kind of thing. He got to do what he really wanted to do, which was science fiction. And also, oh, by the way, maybe I'll be able to get away with some of the stuff that I've been trying so hard to address in straight drama because they're not going to pay much attention to me in science fiction. Um, and it worked beautifully. Now, that's my theory. Uh, you know, you, there's been a lot written and a lot said about Rod Serling's ability to use science fiction and fantasy as a way as a way to address these subjects through allegory and through you know uh, through metaphor and i think that is somewhat true but i think the other part of that is that it wasn't so much that it was allegory it was just that it was science fiction and as i said before when it was looked down upon there were people who just were dismiss dismissive of science fiction in general so they just weren't going to pay that much attention to it so it wasn't so much that they didn't get it sometimes they did a lot of times they did but it was also that once the spaceships show up, they just you know they turn off their turn off their brains and they don't they don't watch it. Um, the you know the famous example I'll give you on that is you know I mean six months into the series and, and again I'll go back to that Mike Wallace interview for a second. If you've never seen a Mike Wallace interview, you can find it on YouTube. It's, it's definitely worth watching. But um, during this interview, Rod Sterling specifically says, ah, I'm not you know I'm not going to make any waves here. I'm not going to you know, touch any controversial subject matter. I'm, I'm playing, I'm going to play nice with this, you know, this show. Don't worry about it, you know. And then six months later, he has an episode called The Monsters of New on Maple Street. One of the best uh, episodes, one of the best half hours of television history. And this episode ends with Rod Sterling's narration at the end of the episode saying, there are certain, there are weapons that are not, that do not come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, prejudices, attitudes to be found only in the minds of men. And I, and I won't finish it, you know, finish it for you, but it was Rod Strong specifically saying, you know, I'm talking about you guys, I'm reaching through the TV, I'm talking about us, I'm talking about you. Uh, you know, we have these prejudices, we have these, these thoughts that can, be, that can be deadly. And he didn't get any pushback on this. He didn't get any pushback from the, from the sponsors and the network, and why? I mean, he was even specifically said, this wasn't allegory. This was Rod Serling saying, I, you know, these, these, and these, the, the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the Twilight Zone. That was the end of it. I mean, he specifically says, I'm not talking about the Twilight Zone here. I'm talking about our, our place, you know? And he got away with it. Why? Because, as I said, I believe that at least to some extent, that once that spaceship shows up at the end of Monsters on Maple Street and the aliens are talking about Earth, it's like, eh, what is this? I don't get it. Let's just forget this. They, they, they dismissed it. And he was, so he was able to get away with it that way. So that's the Twilight Zone. So yes, he absolutely had a pulp background, at least in terms of his, um, you know, his, the things that he liked. But again, he was not a writer for the pulps. Now, Rod Sewing did something very, very smart when he you know, began the Twilight Zone. Nobody could write every episode of a series, and he, he 
came about as close as you possibly could. He wrote 92 episodes of 156 in five seasons. Um, 70 of them were originals, 22 were adaptations. But the smart thing he did was he brought along Charles Beaumont and Richard Matheson, uh, and eventually George Clayton Johnson as well, and Verlander. Um, but those guys, of course, had a history in the pulps. They were working writers. They wrote for every magazine under the sun, particularly Beaumont, Beaumont and Matheson, really. Uh, so yes, so they had that uh, that history with the pulps, and um, you know, and the rest is history, so to speak. So, so I'm going to show you some. You know, I had a, a video that unfortunately is not going to play, but the the video that let's see, yeah, this video right here that I won't actually play. I'll just show you this <laughs> sitting there. Um, he basically says, listen, the beauty of it when he did when they first did the Twilight Zone, the beauty of it was that I had this gold mine of untouched material that had never been done on television before. You know, nobody had ever gone into these magazines and got these great stories that, you know, that, that could be done. I mean, yes, there were, there were science fiction you know, shows before the Twilight Zone. There was, you know, uh, Tales of Tomorrow and science fiction theater, and, but nothing, nothing like the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone was revolutionary on television, um, especially in a fantasy sense, not even so much in a science fiction sense, but fantasy in, in this regard, you know, in this way, had not been done on television. So. What he says is, yeah, they've been done printed, they've been printed in magazines and books over and over again, but they've never been done on television. So we had this just this gold mine to, to, to pick from. And as I said, you know, Sterling wrote 70 originals, but he wrote 22 adaptations, and then other people wrote adaptations as well. So probably the, may, this may be the earliest, um, you know, source that you know, went to Weird Tales 1939. Uh, the Valley was still, this, this turned into an episode called uh, Still Valley, uh, mainly Wade Wilman. Um, it's an episode about uh, the Civil War where a, um, a Confederate soldier gets a hold of a spell book that can maybe win the Civil War for the South, and he decides that, uh, you know what, we're going to sell our souls to the devil if we, if we use this book to win the war, and I'd rather, I'd rather we lose the war than lose our souls, essentially. And uh, certainly uh, adapted that one. Unknown Worlds. This is uh, Blind Alley. This was a fourth season episode, uh, late I think of Cliffordville. It's a time travel story. Rod certainly loved time travel uh, in general. And, you know, from the standpoint of being able to go back to those earlier, simpler times, it was one reason he liked it because I could go, you know, uh, vicariously go back in time through my characters. Um, but you know, he just liked time travel in general. And uh, if you don't know, the fourth season of The Twilight Zone, they were an hour-long episodes. And generally, they're generally viewed as inferior to the half-hour episodes. But, uh, and this was, uh, this was one of the middle-of-the-road ones, I think, for the, uh, you know, for, the for the fourth season. Astounding. And one of the things that I, I um, realized, you know, going through some of these magazines, going through, Talk about a golden age of science fiction. I mean, you'll see how many different titles are here, how many different magazines that these that these came from. It's just there's a, you know two dozen. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's across the board. Um, you know, nowadays it's tough to keep a keep a science fiction magazine in, you know uh, in business essentially for for too long. But back then, God, it's just it's just amazing. But um, this one, what you need. Uh, was actually done on Tales of Tomorrow. They actually adapted it for that, sh that show first, and then certainly got a whole, got a whole bit to do for Twilight Zone. Um, a good episode uh, about a, a guy who can basically tell somebody what they need and uh, sell these a peddler and can sell them, you know, 
pair of scissors that they're going to need because they're going to get this scarf foot in the elevator on the way down and they can cut themselves free and that kind of thing. Um, so that was one of them. Galaxy. Now here we get into uh, Richard Matheson. Uh, Richard Matheson wrote some of the best products and episodes, as did Charles Beaumont, as did Rod Serling. I mean, um, Matheson, the very first issue, the debut issue of Galaxy Science Fiction, October of 1950, uh, that has a, a story by Matheson called Third from the Sun. Now, Third from the Sun is interesting because, um, and I'm going to spoil all sorts of endings tonight, so if you've never, <laughs> if you've never seen these episodes, you've never read the stories, I'm sorry, the show is 70 to 60 years old, so I'm going to spoil them all. Um, Third from the Sun is about a, uh, a, a group of people, a family essentially, who they know that there's going to be a nuclear war on the planet, there's going to be a devastating war on the planet, and they've got to get off, they, they want to get off the planet and escape. So they do, they get off and they take a spaceship and they escape the planet and it turns out that the planet they're going to is Earth. And it's not, you know, they come from Earth, they're going to Earth. Now this, that twist ending, this is October of 1950, that was, you know, it was new at the time. That was a great twist ending at the time. That twist ending became like the dreaded cliche for science fiction editors everywhere. I mean, you know, they go through the slush pile and you find 10 stories where it turns out that they're going to Earth instead of coming from, you know, it just became a really, uh, I mean, and you can think of other examples of where that happened, but I still find people to this day that, that watch that episode like, oh, they, they think that's the greatest twist ending ever. Why don't we talk about that ending to my mom? Because it's been done 3,000 times, that's why. But, and then the following month, so we got back-to-back -back months issues, the next month is Damon Nice to Serve Man, which is the greatest twist ending of all time. Um, Long before the Twilight Zone debuted, at least a year before the Twilight Zone debuted, Theodore Sturgeon, Ted Sturgeon, recommended to serve man to Serling and said, you got to read this ending, you're going to love it, and, and he was right. Um, Serling, of course, uh, adapted it, and, and he adapted it beautifully. Uh, this is uh, an example where Serling really, really enhanced the story. I mean, it's a great story, don't get me wrong, um, but the way it's told to me in that Twilight Zone episode, flashback, with the narration at the beginning and the end, the characters on the ship, on the way to the Canavis planet, and at the end he's saying, hey, he breaks the fourth wall and talks to the audience, hey, are you on the ship yet? Are you maybe you're gonna be an ingredient in somebody's soup? You know, um, that, that was, uh, you know, and, uh, and Damon Knight loved it, loved the episode. Um, you know, he said it was a big star at home, you know, it was one of those things. And I should probably point out right here that um, this is another thing you would have heard if, uh, from that video clip, is that Rod Sterling had so much respect for the, for the science fiction writers who were publishing in the Pulse. Um, he just, he bowed to them that they, that they were the real science fiction writers. He never considered himself a real science fiction writer. And Rod Sterling was, in case, again, if you don't know this, Rod Sterling was his own harshest critic. He never gave himself a break on anything. He just killed himself about even his best work, even his best work, you would find something to, to criticize in it. And so when it came to this, he was very, very humble. He would never put himself on the level of a Ray Bradbury or anybody else or a Heinleinster or anybody in terms of being a science fiction writer. Um, what he did take credit for, rightly, was that he made it palatable on television. He was the one who brought it to television and made it and put it in a form that the mass audience could understand. And that's a uh, presentation for another time, how he did that. But, um, but yeah, so back-to-back -back issues, two classic sign, uh, Twilight Zone episodes there. 
And then we get to Charles Beaumont. And I understand there'll be the uh, Charles Beaumont documentary after this. Um, this uh, September 1952. You know, people uh, in general, especially, you know, like the layman, they look at, at um, science fiction in general as being predictive. You know, uh, you know, they think, you know, like when you set a story in the year 2020 and it doesn't actually come to happen, like you made a mistake, you know, like you're supposed to be predicting things. And that's overstated, you know. Science fiction is not about predicting things. Um, it's in some cases, it's a way of saying, if we go on this way, this might happen. But it's not about predicting things. But Charlotte Bowman's The Beautiful People, which was produced as number 12 looks just like you, is about as prophetic as a Twilight Zone episode could get. I, this is an astoundingly prophetic episode. It's about, you know, I'm gonna ruin it for you. It's, it's uh, about a future society where everyone has to undergo plastic surgery, uh, a form of plastic surgery to ensure mass conformity. And everybody's beautiful in this, in this society. You know, they, you know, everybody looks the same. You know, they all have, you know, they're all, they're all perfect. And I, you know, watch this episode today and it's as, it's as relevant now as it was, you know, 60 years ago. Pretty amazing. Again, another different magazine if you want to science fiction. Amazing stories, of course. Uh, this was two different Beaumont episodes, back to 51 and then 57. Um, uh, well, actually, no, one Beaumont, one Matheson. Little Girl Lost from October, November 53. Little Girl Lost, one of the more famous Twilight Zone episodes about the, um, yeah, about the little girl Tina who rolls off the bed and rolls into another dimension. They just happen to know a physicist who knows how to get it back from inside the, inside the wall. Um, and The Devil You Say is actually one of the better fourth season, one hour long episodes starring Burgess Meredith. Uh, it's called Printer's Devil on Twilight Zone. It's about a, uh, a newspaper editor who uh, is visited by Satan and he can you know, make him a successful newspaper editor by predicting the future. And he makes the future happen, of course, and um, gives him the scoops on what's going to happen. Uh, I think that's actually one of the, one of the better hour-long episodes. Yet another title, Fantastic Adventures, Brothers Beyond the Void, uh, certainly adapted that one as people are alike all over, um, with uh, Roddy McDowell, Marcus, and you're right, people are alike all over, where he ends up in the zoo. Um, that's, you know, the Martians look like us, but they put them in a, in a, essentially a cage, and that's how people are alike all over. The Generally speaking, when Rod Sterling adapted a short story, he was pretty faithful to the, to the original short story. Um, there's one I didn't get to yet that he was not faithful at all to, uh, but generally he was pretty faithful. This one he was, he changed a couple of characters around, he gave some characteristics to, you know, to Marcus and then Conrad had in the story, vice versa, but, um, but uh, you know, he was pretty faithful to this, this particular story. Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. Now this is what the one where um, this was actually the first um, first story that Serling bought from Richard Matheson. When Matheson first started selling stories to Serling, uh, he would sell, sell the story and, and Serling would adapt it. He, wouldn't, he didn't write his own stuff for Twilight Zone initially. And I think he, he said that he was kind of like iffy on, on doing his own stuff. He didn't want to do his own short story on Twilight Zone. So he'd rather give him an original screenplay. If he was going to do a short story, he'd let Serling do it. I already wrote it as a short story. He read it as a, as a TV show. But this one, uh, Disappearing Act, it was uh, adapted as When the Sky Was Open, an excellent, excellent first season episode that has almost nothing to do with Richard Matheson's story. It takes up just a kernel of the story 
and spins it into a totally different uh, way, into, to the point that Richard Matheson actually said, I don't even know why he paid me for it. He just could have written this whole episode, why you know, he bought it. But it's about, um, Richard Matheson's story is about a man who um, finds that his friends are disappearing. His friends, his wife, his, his, uh, his you know, people around him are just disappearing and nobody remembers them. You know, nobody remembers, you know, I'm the, I'm the only one who remembers these people. What happened? And Sterling took it and made it a space, uh, a, a, more of a science fiction show where these astronauts come back from a mission and there's three of them and suddenly one disappears and the other two, uh, you know, they, they, nobody remembers the third guy. What, you know, and then the, the second guy disappears and, you know, they say, no, there's a solo mission. What are you talking about? Remember these other two guys? And then by the end, the third guy disappears. And, and it's one of the more ambiguous Twilight Zone endings. They never explain, you know, really why these people are disappearing. It's just kind of implied that, you know, something went wrong and they, should, they weren't supposed to come back. And so the universe is just wiping them out. You know, and it's a really excellent um, commentary on, on, on the, you know, the fears of going into space back in 1959-60. Imagination, another, another title. Two more Beaumonts. Beaumont was, Beaumont was you know, publishing in, in everywhere. Uh, eventually, he started publishing for Playboy almost exclusively. And he was, I mean, he was as, as successful short, short story writers as you could be at the time, really. And he, you know, he wrote, he wrote some of the best Twilight Zone, Twilight Zone episodes. Um, he had Elegy, nineteen fifty-three. The Man Made Himself was another fourth season episode in, in, in his image. Another title, Beyond. Sorry, right number uh, was adapted fifth season Night Call. Richard Madison did not write many stories in the fifth season. Um, for whatever reason, the producer of the fifth season um, you know, was different than the other seasons, and he just didn't like Matheson's stuff, because he's a dope, you know, but I, I guess, I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it, but, so Matheson didn't have much in the fifth season. But this was uh, one of the creepier Twilight Zones. Talk about scary Twilight Zones. People, you know, we, uh, you know, we can argue about what the scariest Twilight Zone episode is, and everybody seems to be freaked out by something different. Um, this is an episode that uh, got me when I was a kid. This is about an old, old woman who's in a, you know, in her deathbed, essentially, and she starts getting these freaky, you know, creepy calls from somebody, and, and it turns out they're coming from her dead husband, and, uh, you know, they find the, you know, the uh, telephone line is lying on his grave. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, that's, that's definitely one of the scarier episodes. Back to Beaumont, The Jungle. The Jungle is, uh, you know, 1954. The Jungle is one of the more uh, underrated episodes, I think. Um, I, I like this one. Uh, people, from, from what I gather, I think people don't, don't like this one as much, quite as much as I do. This was starring John Denner. Uh, it's about a guy who, um, he's a businessman, and they kind of uh, pillaged a village in Africa, and the superstitions come back to, you know, they follow him to New York, basically, and uh, at the end, his, his wife gets eaten by a lion, I mean, you know, they don't show it, of course, but, you know, that's obviously what happens. Another, another pretty scary episode. I mean, there, there are sequences in this episode where he's running from, you know, from nothing. You know, he just hears drums, and, you know, he sees, you know, strange things, and he's, um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty creepy one. Infinity Science Fiction, again, I get lost count, is probably like the eighth or ninth different, you know, different science fiction magazine. Perchance to Dream. Perchance to Dream was the first Charles Beaumont scripted episode of the series. Um, Perchance to Dream is about a guy who goes to a psychiatrist to tell him that he's been having this recurring nightmare 
about a woman who's luring him onto a roller coaster, and he's got a heart condition, and the nightmare freaks him out so bad that he feels like he's gonna have a heart attack and die, so he doesn't wanna go back to sleep. So when he first goes to the psychiatrist, he's been awake for 72 hours, he won't go to sleep. And when Charles Beaumont wrote this episode, uh, you know, the screenplay, not the story, but the teleplay, he said, I, I never expected it to go on the air as it was written. You know, Rod Serling told me, yeah, write it the way you see it, and don't worry about the little old lady in Dubuque, you know, she'll get it, you know, she get, doesn't get enough credit, you know, she knows what's, she can understand it, you know, and she, you can do it the way you want it. And he just, and Beaumont said, I just assumed he was just screwing, I mean, you know, he's not gonna use it the way I wrote it. Well, it went on verbatim, not a word was changed. And from that moment on, you know, Beaumont, you know, realized what he was dealing with here. He was really dealing with a different show. This was a show that was going to respect the writers, and it was also going to respect the intelligence of the audience, that was, you know, unheard of at the time. The magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, 1956. There's an episode called Steel, a short story called Steel, also the episode called Steel, starring Lee Marvin. It was a uh, robot boxing episode where Lee Marvin, uh, they have robot boxing in the future because boxing has been outlawed. And uh, it was loosely uh, the, uh, the inspiration for the Hugh Jackman movie, Real Steel. I think Matheson got some credit for that. Um, so fifth season episode, some people love, you know, Matheson, this is probably, Matheson is probably his favorite of the ones that were done from, from his episodes. I'm not a huge fan of this one, but there, it certainly has its fans. Um, Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, this is a, a price day, I mean, a writer that you, you know, wouldn't have, you know, not a famous writer by any stretch. Uh, four o'clock, Rod Serling uh, adapted that one starring Theodore McKellen. Not one of the better Twilight Zone episodes, but one reason I wanted to show this was because one of the things I think people miss about the Twilight Zone, especially in the remakes, umpteenth remakes that have been done, is that the Twilight Zone was not only, you know, science fiction, fantasy, and horror, but it was noir. It was, it was, it always had a touch of noir, even in the science fiction and fantasy episodes. So it did reach into mystery magazines like, like Hitchcock. Um, you know, in the Twilight Zone, 1959 to 1964, you know, the men wore hats, you know, the, they smoked all the time, they drank all the time. It was noir, it was, it, the, the characters had, it was black and white, obviously. It was, uh, it had that noir sensibility to it. And that was, that's completely missing every you know attempt to remake the series uh, since then. And that's my last uh, slide. But so yeah, so listen, the, the you know the pulp roots of the Twilight Zone obviously uh, are there. They had, you know, as Rodson said in the, the clip that I couldn't play you, um, they had this gold mine of, of short stories to draw from. And they drew from it, you know, pretty much continuously, whether Sterling was adapting them or whether Beaumont was adapting his own stories or whether, you know, uh, Matheson was adapting his own stories or whatever. Um, they had, you know, they had these stories to draw from. They've been released. You can get the uh, Twilight Zone, the original stories in a collection that has all the, you know, the original stories that were eventually turned into Twilight Zone episodes. And, you know, there, there are other collections as well. But, um, so, I mean, if you have any questions about Rod Serling, let, you know, let me just tell you also, I haven't mentioned, but, um, I'm also a, a, a member of the board of directors of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. We're, we're a charity that, um, that helps to preserve and promote Rod Serling's legacy. 
And uh, as this is the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone, we're actually having a, uh, a convention this year called Sterling Fest in Binghamton, New York, about Sterling's hometown, October uh, 4th, 5th, and 6th. The actual anniversary is the 2nd. And uh, it's going to be a three-day event, uh, just a celebration of the Twilight Zone. This is actually going to be the third year we're doing it. Uh, the prior two years, we've covered you know, everything that's Sterling, uh, Sterling related. This year will be 90% the Twilight Zone. It also happens to be the 50th anniversary of Night Gallery's debut in November of 69. So we're going to be uh, screening Night Gallery and then doing that. There's going to be, at last count, uh, 11, different, 11 different writers who have written really substantial books about uh, Sterling, Twilight Zone, whatever, uh, who are going to be there. So um, if you go around Sterling.com, you can get uh, information about that. But, yes, please. No, very, very much so he favored the Twilight Zone and the Night Gallery. He, he had a very, very contentious relationship with the Night Gallery series, particularly with the producer of Night Gallery, a man named Jack Lair. Uh, Jack Lair was, he was the producer of Night Gallery, and he was, to my research, the only person in Rod Stone's entire career that he didn't get along with. I mean, he was just, Rod Stone got along with everybody. I mean, he really did. He was, he was a people person. He was gregarious, he was personable, he was, um, you know, he just, he liked people. And he and Jack Laird just butted heads from day one, I mean, literally from the moment they met, they didn't get along. And not only did they not get along personally, but Jack Laird was not a huge fan of Rod Serling as a writer. And believe it or not, you know, um, he just, just wasn't. And, and to be fair to Jack Laird, to some extent, you know, he's put in a strange position because he was basically given the reins of that series. He said, hey, this is your series to produce. It's called Rod Serling's Night Gallery, but you're the producer, and oh, by the way, the head writer is a guy you know, I'm not a big fan of, you know? And so he was in a weird position. But Jack Laird was not a people person. Rod Serling was, and Jack Laird did not handle it, handle Rod Serling well at all. So, so they butted head, heads constantly. And the problem with Night Gallery was that Rod Serling didn't have any say in the creative process of Night Gallery. He wrote for it, but that was it. And after he wrote it, they could do what they wanted. He could be rejected, you know, he had no say in cast, no say in director, no say in production values, nothing. So he was continuously uh, frustrated with that series. Now having said that, I, I point out in the book that I think Rod Serling wrote some of his absolute best stuff for Night Gallery. There are a couple of episodes of Night Gallery that I put up there with anything else that Rod Serling wrote. Uh, particularly an episode called The Messiah on Monastery, which is my favorite uh, night gallery episode about a, um, an old Jewish man who is trying to stay alive for his grandson, and they're just all they have for each other, and, and um, just about, it's literally about them trying to, you know, trying to stay alive for each other. It's just a, it's just a beautiful story. Um, that's, you know, one of, his, one of his best pieces of work. So, yeah, so he wrote some great stuff for it, but the problem with Night Gallery was that, yeah, again, he didn't have any control of, the, of, the, of, the, of anything else, really. And he really, and I agree with him on this, he hated those little vignettes that they would do. Like in between episodes, they might have like a three-minute, usually comedic kind of sketch. It looked like completely Jack Laird's idea. And I, I, I think they're just pointless, too. And he thought they just ruined the tone of the show. And I, and I do agree with him on that. So, But again, having said that, there's a lot of really great Night Gallery episodes. I got a question for you, but first I'm going to make a comment that partly addresses her question. And I'm going to praise you all, but I'm going to violently disagree with you on one 
<laughs> please, please. To, I walked up to this guy's table and I thought, okay, here's another guy exploiting Rod Serling in a media thing. And okay, I've already read one biography of Serling and I've read a bunch of Twilight Zone books. And here's another guy ripping him off. And I started talking to this guy and I realized he understood the pulse. He understood Serling. He understood TV history. He was the first person ever to not just say, well, Serling and Blair didn't get along, but he told me why, and he went into some detail, and he made a statement. Most of everything he said I agreed with, except one thing I partly disagreed with. And I was really impressed by the guy, and I've been walking around with a with a budget, and I've been saying to everybody, okay, I'm thinking about buying the book. I'm gonna buy this guy's book. I really, really got it. I, I, I didn't pay him for any of this, I swear. Uh, but, 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 okay, and, and the thing is, you know, nobody can ever explain the thing about, about, about Laird and, and, and Serling, but uh, here's the thing. Um, for years, I had read Frederick Paul's story Frederick Paul, the great science fiction author, editor, and agent, who had said he once talked to a guy in Hollywood who did a lot of science fiction. He didn't say whether the guy was a screenplay writer or an agent or a producer or whatever, but he said that he talked to the guy, and the guy pointed to a whole bunch of science fiction magazines on the wall, and he said, if I need something, I just go up there and, and pull it out of there. And in 1991, my first convention ever, my first world con ever, there was a convention uh, autographing session. And there was Fred Paul. And I walked up to him, I gave him the book to sign, and I, I told him the story, and I said, okay, who was it you talked to? And he wouldn't say. And I thought maybe it was some hash like Irwin Allen or Sid Pink or, 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 or some character like that, or maybe it was even Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry. But it just occurred to me that, oh shit, it wasn't Rod Serling, was it? Do you think there's any possibility of Serling? Well, um, I'll tell you this, I mean, Rod Serling, uh, he always gave credit where it was due. All so, right, yeah, that, yes. that, that would imply it wasn't, because Serling did, and Serling yeah. obviously loved the stuff. Yeah. And uh, for that reason, like I was saying, you have a multidisciplinary view. I mean, you understand the pulps. You can show us the pulp covers. You can tell us the stories, the author. You can tell us the Beaumont thing and, and the thing with Laird. I was always impressed by how Serling loved the pulps, drew from them, unlike Bill Gaines at EC Comics, who ripped off Bradbury and had to be gently well, blackmailed yeah. by, Brad, by Bradbury into admitting it and paying him. This guy would pay the people and hire them. So well, I'll give you. I'll pitch it up because you, because I should, I should at least address to some extent the Bradbury Serling dynamic because Bradbury and Serling were the keyword were very good friends. They were very close friends. Um, I mean, their families were on vacation together. They were very good friends, and then Bradbury started accusing Serling of plagiarism. Oh, really? Yes. That's ironic um, because he. That Sterling would, and Sterling would start hearing things. Hey, Bradbury was into something. And guess what? He's saying he stole his story about you know, 
And, um, and they had a pretty contentious exchange of letters where Sterling said, uh, said essentially what I said, hey, you know, you had dinner at my house and you can't come to me and say this to my face. You have to go, you know, behind my back to say this stuff. So they were not friends for the rest of their life. And Bradbury never sued him. And I mean, in one of the letters, Sterling essentially says, hey, Ray, sue me. You really think I stole your story? To, to, but sue me. And he never did. Um, so I, I really, and listen, I, I love Bradbury. Okay, I mean, everybody loves Bradbury. And I, he's written some of my favorite short stories with my favorite novels. Um, however, I think he really treated Sterling badly. And I, especially from the standpoint that Bradbury was the king. I mean, he was the king of this group of writers, Beaumont and Matheson included. And he really could have welcomed Sterling into the group. Again, Sterling did not publish short stories in these pulps. He was not a short story writer, he was a novelist. And he really was coming at it as an outsider. And Bradbury could have really kind of welcomed him in as an outsider, said, hey, you're one of us. And instead, he did take the opposite tack. He said that, and, and again, this is completely my opinion, you know, nobody else's, but I think he was jealous. He really, he really, Bradbury had a series that was being pitched right before the Twilight Zone. It was called Ray Bradbury's To the Moon and Back, or something to do with the moon. And it didn't sell, and Rod Sterling's did. Do you talk and about that in the book? That, story, that, that series I don't know, the, the Bradbury series I don't, but, um, but yeah, and then Rod Sterling all of a sudden is outsider comes in and becomes the you know science fiction king and starts being compared to Bradbury. And I think Bradbury was jealous, I really do. And so does Robert, so Robert Sterling actually mentioned that he, he had the same opinion too uh, as his brother, but yeah. Well in any event, I, I just want to say that I, I, I think you really are the first person to bring it all together because TV people talk about TV, pulp people talk about pulp, Science fiction, non-pulp talk, so. science fiction. No, you seem to have brought everything together, and and I, I think he was the. I think Sterling was like to to science fiction authors and TV what John W. Campbell had been to science fiction authors. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. What, what Ralph Sterling did was, and I, this is a, I, there's another presentation I do about this particularly, but what Ralph Sterling did was he really made science fiction and fantasy, particularly fantasy, accessible to the mainstream audience on television. When this show debuted in 1959, 18 million people watched that, de that debut episode. You gotta figure 17 million of them had never read magazine fantasy and science fiction. You know, they just didn't. So Ralph Sterling had to teach these people what fantasy is all about, and I mean that literally. Um, again, I, there's a different presentation for another time, but, but he did that. He actually taught people the tropes. He taught people what, some, what fantasy was all about on television. And every science fiction show or fantasy show that come afterward owes a gigantic debt to Rudson for doing that. Not only for doing that, but for also about raising the bar for the quality of these shows, because that's what the show was. The show was, it took this, this ghetto genre of science fiction and treated it like it was a quality presentation, um, that it was highbrow, and nobody had done it before, before Rod Sterling did. Yeah. One, one, one last question. Do you do, or did the person who made that slide do 3D photography? I don't, but I, I did this, but no, I don't do it all. Yeah. Because, because frequently, I do 3D photography, and yeah, I can preview stereograms without a viewer, both on slides and, and, and prints, and, that is, if anybody else in the audience has preview stereo, <laughs> look at those pictures. It, it isn't just that one is wider than the other. 
is an astonishing 3D stereograph. Maybe you can put the two together. Did you have the bottle? They took the bottle from Tammy, please. One last one, I think. I think she was primarily talking about particular shows that I uncovered. That, that's one thing I, I'll end up with this, is that um, this book really started very, very simply. I wanted to get a complete list, just a list. I wanted to get a complete list of everything about Sterling Grove that was produced. And believe it or not, every list that, had been out, that was out there was incomplete. They all had things missing, or mistakes or whatever. Even, you know, IMDb was missing things. And so I wanted to get a complete list, and I uncovered probably half a dozen things that Rod Stern wrote that had not been included on any of his bibliographies. So, yeah, as Stern was saying, I, you know, I never heard of the show, I never heard of the show, so there's a bunch of stuff like that, yeah, that she, uh, she had never heard of. So, yeah. but. Um, for the Twilight Zone uh, on CBS, they, they do the reruns now. Um, it's Cuba Productions on Now, What's the connection with Sterling to Oh yeah, yeah. He, they still he had a cabin on Cayuga Lake, and they still have it. The family has this, these three cabins actually on Cayuga Lake, and the family still owns them. Um, so he would go back there every summer. They would spend on Cayuga Lake, and he taught at Ithaca College for many years. And uh, Ithaca College is one of the archives of the certain material that I that I did uh, you know visit for some of my research. I went to school with his nephew. Hmm? I went to school with his nephew. Oh really? Okay. Uh, which, oh, okay. Because yeah. Binghamton are not, they're fairly close and to each other as well. Yeah. How did you get along with uh, Desilu? He got along with Desilu just fine. Um, I mean, they uh, well, they only did the one show. They did the Time Element, which now is kind of considered the unofficial Twilight Zone pilot. That's that's a uh, you know a good story that um, you know the Desilu story about that. And, but they they have a very instrumental. Uh, place in Twilight's own history. Without them, you know, maybe it goes a different way because they aired what really was the Twilight's own pilot called the time element. And I'm sorry for the way you know, um, you know, there's a story out. Yeah, I'm way over time. I'm way over time, is that it? Yeah. Okay, well, all right, I'll tell you the time element story real quick. The Twilight's own was originally pitched, uh, the first time he pitched, pitched it was called the Twilight's own the time element. And it was a, it was a time travel story about a guy who thinks he's going back in time to the day before the attack on Pearl Harbor. And he's trying to convince people that there's gonna be this attack and of course nobody believes him. Well, he submitted this script to, to CBS and they rejected it as a pilot because they just thought the ending was too ambiguous. Again, the mainstream viewers are gonna get this. They're not just, they're not savvy enough. They're not gonna understand it. Well, Desi Lou Playhouse, boy, they liked it. The producer liked it and Desi Arnaz liked it. And they loved Rod Sterling and they wanted to do it. So they said, all right, we'll do it. And they did, and it got more positive viewer mail than anything else that Desilu had ever done. And CBS, you know, woke up and said, oh, yeah, you know, maybe that Twilight Zone idea is pretty, is pretty good. Let's, let's try and push that forward. So, so they moved forward with the Twilight Zone series. And, and yeah, so, so, I mean, his relationship with them was, was just fine. And, and the funny thing is, um, Desi, uh, Desi Arnaz's daughter, Desi and Lucy's daughter, um, Lucy Arnaz, 
She never knew. She never knew until decades later. She never knew the, uh, the connection to, with, between her father and the Twilight Zone. And she says she loved the Twilight Zone. They would watch it all the time. They, they watched it together all the time well, um, when she would visit them on weekends. And he, she said never once did he, did he turn to her and say, hey, you know, without me, then show me. Never, never, you know, took credit for anything. But, uh, yeah, so. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast. Brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2019.